Welcome to World War I Centennial News, episode number 86. It's about World War I then, what was happening a hundred years ago. And it's about World War I now, news and updates about the centennial and the commemoration. Now, as many of you know, we've extended the podcast to include a Twitter handle, at the WW1 podcast. That's at T-H-E-W-W, the number one podcast. This lets us include images and details from the show. You can ask us questions, make comments, get a link that you missed, or even ask us to drop a note to one of our guests for you. Because it's more than just a podcast. It's a conversation about the war that changed the world. This week, a hundred years ago, we take a look at the Army Air Service. Mike Schuster reflects on the mindset of the combatants who think that war may simply have become a habit. Dr. Edward Lengel brings us the final chapter of the 28th Division, the Pennsylvania National Guard Doughboys, as they fight in Femet. Then, U.S. World War I Centennial Commissioner John Monahan tells us more about the American Legion and the planned Armistice Centennial events. Video game visionary Johan Fanis joins us from Europe for an inside scoop on the upcoming World War I game release, 1111 Memories Retold. We're joined by reenactors and brothers Seth and Garrett Moore, and The Buzz, where Catherine Akey highlights some of the World War I posts and stories from social media. World War I Centennial News is brought to you by the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, and the Star Foundation. I'm Teo Mayer, the Chief Technologist for the Commission and your host. Welcome to the show. A hundred years ago at this time, the Allied nations were pretty sure that the war was going to continue until Germany was either invaded or destroyed. As we examine the articles and the headlines at the end of August 1918, an interesting picture emerges. Now, with the clarity of looking backwards, we know what happened. But back then, common wisdom or theory said that the answer to ending the war quickly was to use the new technology of airplanes to bomb Berlin into rubble in order to force a German surrender, and that it would be American air power that would turn the trick. Now, freakishly, a quarter century later, the exact same strategy and rationalization combined with another new technology, the atom bomb, was used to end the war with Japan. Unfortunately, in 1917 and 1918, America was really struggling with making its massive investment in airplane design and production work. So, with that as a setup, we're going to jump into our centennial time machine and go back a hundred years to explore the headlines and the articles from the official bulletin, the government's war gazette, and the New York Times, filled this week with speculation and controversy about the war in the sky. Okay, we've landed at the end of August 1918 when a Canadian newspaper publisher returns from a visit to the war zone with an unambiguous message about the common wisdom and strategy for winning the war. From the pages of the New York Times. Dateline, August 30, 1918. Headline, Call on America for Victory in the Air. 
that his overseas program, says Quebec publisher returning to Canada from the front. It will conserve Allied lives. Message of men from over there is, war will end when airmen strike home at Berlin. And the story reads, Crushing defeat for the enemy, peace in six months, and conservation of Allied lives are only possible through the air according to the message brought back to America by Frank Carell, proprietor of the Quebec Telegraph. The Victory Air program, as outlined by Mr. Carell's statement, formulated by talks with overseas leaders, calls for America to build bigger, faster airplanes and to build them more abundantly, period. Mr. Carell stated, When do I expect the war to be won? Well, I'm glad you asked me that. I have concluded a reply said the Quebec editor on his arrival at his eastern port. I have met and spoken to some of the distinguished leaders of the Allies, including King George, President Poincaré, Monsieur Clemenceau, Sir Douglas Haig, and many connected with the British War Office. I also had the honor of talking for more than an hour with Lloyd George, the daring and popular man at the helm. The general opinion is that the war will last at least one or two years or even longer, and few think it will be of short duration. My opinion is that the war will be won, or even if it is to be limited in any definite length of time, it will be won only through the air. The United States must speed up its building of airplanes, it must double the present rate of output and must be ready to double the flying speed of the present type and increase the carrying facility until it is possible for air machines to reach Berlin with large cargoes of explosives. The policy of using kid gloves with Germany, allowing her to go on murdering our women and children, must be brought to an end and the airplane will do it. The Germans, through expert propaganda, still believe that the Kaiser and his hordes are winning the war. The fear of God must be instilled into them, and this can only be done through dropping tons of bombs on Berlin. Not sporadically, not periodically, but every hour of the day until there is nothing left but a pile of smoldering ruins. Berlin must be made to look like what I have seen in the cities of Verdun, Ypres, Amiens, Arras, and Countless more. Well, even though the first powered flight happened in America by the Wright brothers at Kitty Hawk, and even though the country has committed to the single largest federal appropriation in the nation's history to its aircraft design and manufacturing endeavor for the war effort, things are just not going that well. To the point where a big congressional investigation has been pressuring the administration to change its management of that endeavor. And this week, a hundred years ago, the administration responds. Dateline, August 27th, 1918. A headline in the New York Times reads, Ryan appointed to direct Army's entire air plans. Baker gives him title of Second Assistant Secretary of War with full powers. Changes approved by President. And intended to meet Senate demand for separate department. And the story reads, Washington, 
swiftly upon the heels of the disclosure made in the Senate Military Committee report upon the Army aircraft investigation, the announcement was made today by Secretary of War Baker of the selection of John D. Ryan to act as Second Assistant Secretary of War with full responsibility to oversee the Army's air service. Secretary Baker made it plain that the changes announced were being instituted with the full concurrence of President Wilson. It is the President's answer to the recommendation of the Congressional Thomas Report on the Aircraft Investigation for the creation of a Department of the Air to unify the nation's air activities. John D. Ryan, as Second Assistant Secretary, is designated Director of Air Services and is charged with the responsibility of procuring and furnishing to the Army in the field the equipment and the personnel required for the Air Service and is given supervision, control, and direction over the Bureau of Aircraft Production and the Bureau of Military Aeronautics with full power, completely to coordinate their activity and to develop and carry out the air program. Mr. Ryan will select a new head for the Bureau of Aircraft Production. So, as the administration works hard on getting the fledgling and vital industry effective, the airplane takes a central role in the 1918 end-of-summer Labor Day celebration, a big holiday for the workers and unions toiling on the war effort. Dateline, August 30, 1918. A headline in the New York Times reads, Airplanes to lead Labor Day parade will drop leaflets online telling of workers' part in the war. And the story reads, more than 100,000 members of labor unions will march up Fifth Avenue beginning at 10 o'clock on Monday morning in what is expected to be the most impressive Labor Day parade ever held in this country. American, French, British, and Italian airplanes will drop leaflets on the line, telling how the foundation of the coming Allied victory is based on the labor, which makes the airplanes, the munitions, and the ships. After the parade, there will be a gathering at the Manhattan Casino, where an address will be made by the Secretary of Labor. Another speaker will be Mrs. Emmeline Pankhurst, one of the greatest factors in the recruitment of more than five million women into the war-winning industries in England. Now, Emmeline Pankhurst is a really interesting character. She's a British political activist and the leader of the British suffragette movement who helped the women in England get the right to vote. Now, she's been called one of the 100 most important people in the 20th century, stating she shaped an idea of women for our time. She shook society into new patterns from which there could be no going back. In another article in the New York Times, she unambiguously states that women are the answer to getting the U.S. aircraft industry flowing. Dateline, August 30, 1918. A headline in the New York Times reads, Women can make airplanes we need. If asked, they will put their strength into the essential industries here as they do in England. Mrs. Pankhurst tells how four and a half million women in England are helping to beat the Hun. She finds the same spirit in women here. And the story reads, 
Mrs. Emmeline Pankhurst, the English suffragist leader who has played a great part in the process by which most of the full capacity of the women of England have been used for the production of munitions and aircraft and for other war work, said yesterday that the women in this country are as eager to put their full strength into the war-winning industries and could be employed for speeding the war on the same scale as they're being used in England, period. A recent government report on the employment of women on munitions and metalwork in this country stated that the results have been highly satisfactory, as women were found quick to learn and also able to surpass men in repetitive work, in which the same process was performed over and over again through the day. At the beginning of the war, Mrs. Pankhurst said, the British government did not understand that they would need the labor of women. Mrs. Pankhurst continued, All experience proves that women are well fitted by nature to do a large share of the work if training is given. There has been some opposition on the part of men in factories to their employment. This opposition still exists in England, though to a lesser degree. I do not believe that any opposition will be offered by organized labor in this country. And that's a snapshot of some of the public conversation and sentiment on the home front a hundred years ago at the end of August, during the war that changed the world. Changing our view from the home front to back over there, we now go to Mike Schuster, former NPR correspondent and the curator for the Great War Project blog. Now, Mike, as we've just illustrated, the official thinking and the common belief in the summer of 1918 is that the war is going to continue well into 1919 and maybe beyond. So, in your post, you conjecture that this may simply be that the idea of war has become habit. But the common soldier, especially the German soldier, may simply not agree. They don't seem to, Teo. So our headlines read, Planning the War of 1919. War is almost over, but can they see it? What about Bolshevik Russia, allies dismembering the Russian Empire? And this is special to the Great War Project. American troops have landed at Russia's far eastern port of Vladivostok. Russia is once again in play. The date is August 16th, a century ago, according to historian Martin Gilbert. It is only the first stage of the Allied extension of their forces far beyond the limits of Europe and the Western Front. The next day, reports Gilbert, the Allies extend their presence in the Middle East. A British force, having come northward from Persia, entered the city of Baku on the Caspian Sea. It is a British challenge to the Germans and the Bolsheviks in the Caucasus. It is also a move to cut off Russia from the Germans. But that can only occur if the British set up a puppet of their own in Russia. So far, that is not taking place. But then an unexpected twist. Germany persuades Bolshevik Russia to sign a supplementary peace agreement in which the Bolsheviks promised to fight against the Allies in northern Russia. In what they perceived as their national interest, Gilbert writes, Lenin and the Kaiser were making common cause. Among the provisions of this agreement, Germany takes possession of all red naval vessels and facilities in the Black Sea. In late August, on the Western Front reports historian Norman Stone, the Germans are taken by surprise. In the first day of renewed fighting, a triumph, according to historian Stone, almost 50,000 prisoners were taken by the end of the operation. There is a mysterious process in the defeat of any army, writes Stone, the point at which the men give up hope. 
The German army's morale began to break, reports historian Stone, in late July, a century ago. When the Kaiser asks his commanding general what had gone wrong, the general responds that the men were just not fighting anymore. Thousands were surrendering. And Stone reports men were reporting sick in greater and greater numbers. As of late August, the war is almost over. It was obvious enough, writes Stone, but the belligerents, Britain, France, the United States, and Germany, don't know that. They are all planning to continue the war into 1919. Such was the habit of war-making, writes Gilbert, and such was the impact of that infinite hatred over four years that London, Paris, and even Berlin continued to think in terms of renewed offensives, retrenchment, and the War of 1919. It was obvious enough in Germany's case that it would be defeated. The record is quite clear. She had lost over a million men between March and July and a further three-quarters of a million in the succeeding month. There was also a crisis in the German war economy with plant wearing down, Stone writes. No doubt the country could have fought on into 1919, but the end was in sight. It just depended on which leaders had the courage to see it. And that's some of the news from the Great War Project a century ago. Mike Schuster is the curator for the Great War Project blog. The link to his post is in the podcast notes. Now, all analytical thinking and rhetoric aside, on the battlefields of Europe, the war is very, very real indeed. In this week's segment of America Emerges, Military Stories from World War I, Dr. Edward Lengel gives us the third and final chapter of a powerful first-person narrative experience of the actions of the 28th Division, the Pennsylvania National Guard. Now, this is the division that General Pershing dubbed the Iron Men, and for good reason. A warning to listeners, this segment contains graphic descriptions of violence that may be inappropriate for younger listeners. 100 years ago in August 1918, Pennsylvania's 28th Division marched into the war-torn village of Feme and established a bridgehead across the river at Femet. The Doughboys engaged in tough street fighting against seasoned and determined German infantry and fought off several counterattacks. Then the Germans sent in the flamethrowers, forcing a fight to the bitter end. Lieutenant Frank Welton of the 111th Regiment commanded a machine gun post situated in a shell hole outside Fimet on August 11th. Alongside the lieutenant sat his Italian striker, Nick DeSaza. Welton remembered, We sat there and waited, but nothing more happened, and it became too quiet. Nick saw that I was fidgety and started to tell me about his little girl, just 18 years old, just a right and told of the wonderful wedding he'd put on when he got home. He said he'd been through war before, and there wasn't a bullet made that could touch him. While they were talking, several explosions slammed into the shell hole and covered the American squad with dirt. For Welton, it looked as though the curtain was about to ring down for us. Machine gun strafing commenced. Bullets bounced off the edge of our post and crashed into the wall behind us. I knew that something was about to happen and got the gun ready. Nick laid alongside of me on my right to feed the magazines, while Jeffrey lay on Nick's right to do the observing if I had to fire. The German infantry attacked. Nick saw them coming down the riverbank. I got the gun over the edge and gave him a full magazine. Nick slapped another in its place and I threw the single shot lever in order to conserve ammunition. For about 10 long minutes, it became a game of hide and seek 
and then a series of explosions took place very close to us. Jeffrey called that they were again trying to come down the river. Another explosion at this point occurred just in front of the gun and piled us back into the trench. I remember crying out, come on, you dirty and very unprintable language for one who thought he was about to kick in, so-and-so, and we got the old gun back into position. Nick had just placed a new magazine, and I was drawing the handle back to throw in the first cartridge when there came a flash, a terrific roar, and I seemed to float back and drop off to sleep. There was no pain. When I opened my eyes again, I could see the barrel of the machine gun bent in the shape of an L. The magazine bent and twisted directly in front of me, and from both of them rose a blue flame, something like alcohol burning. I turned and saw that I was buried waist-deep in dirt. Then I turned to my right and saw Nick, and the vision would remain with Welton for the rest of his life. He was buried to his waist the same as I, his body erect, helmet off, eyes wide open as if watching over me. I spoke to him, but he never moved. I shook him, and he fell back, staring up at the sky. Then I saw that the whole right side of his upper body was gone. I looked beyond him and saw Jeffrey's body. His head was on the edge of the trench, facing forward about three yards away. His left leg was entirely gone, but his rifle was still in position near his shoulder. I reached for my forty-five and prepared for what I was sure would come, but nothing happened. Then I laid my head on my arms in the dirt and cried like a fool. Lieutenant Hervey Allen drove his men out of their dugout and ordered them to reinforce an American platoon defending a stone wall. They're all dead up there along the wall, Lieutenant, someone cried. Lieutenant Bob Hoffman, heading for the same wall, recalled, Everywhere I looked were dead men. There seemed to be no live men around to man the guns. Here they come, a doughboy shouted. Beyond the wall, Alan watched a puff of smoke roll forward along with a spout of yellow flame. Men curled up like leaves in self-protection as smoke and flames rolled over them and another flash engulfed some nearby houses. One doughboy leapt up and whirled to face the young lieutenant, his body outlined against the flames. Oh my God, he screamed, staring terror-stricken into Alan's face. Oh God! Hoffman's stomach twisted as German soldiers bearing flamethrowers advanced toward the wall, their hoses spewing liquid flames up to 50 yards. Heat scorched his body as billowing clouds of smoke wafted through the village. Barricades, walls, houses, and men were engulfed in flames. Yet the doughboys held, concentrating fire on the flamethrowers. The Americans' hearts leaped whenever they scored a hit. German infantry blasted their way into several houses with rifles and grenades and drove through all the way to the river at some points. Scorched and exhausted, the doughboys nevertheless managed to drive the enemy back. Allen, Wharton, and Hoffman all survived. Their comrades of companies G and H, 112th Regiment, were not so lucky. They entered FEMED on the night of August 26th to 27th and faced the final German attack, led by a battalion of the elite 4th Guards Division. German artillery opened fire at dawn, pummeling the Americans with heavy guns. The shells poured down for 20 minutes before the infantry assaulted in strength. This time, instead of trying to bowl through FEMET from the north, they attacked on both flanks simultaneously with flamethrowers, machine guns, and grenades. German aircraft even swooped down to strafe the beleaguered American companies. The doughboys held out as long as they could, but they had no chance. 
After a long and bitter fight, the bridgehead collapsed. 75 Americans were killed and 127 taken prisoner. Only 34 escaped, swimming across the river to safety. The 28th Division would never forget FEMET. The Pennsylvania Doughboys felt that they owed a debt to the Germans and would work to repay it one month later at the Meuse-Argonne. Dr. Edward Langle is an American military historian and our segment host for America Emerges, Military Stories from World War I. We put the link in the podcast notes to Ed's post and his author's website. And that's this week's Look Back a Century Ago. Now it's time to fast forward into the present with World War I Centennial News Now. This part of the podcast focuses on now and how the centennial of World War I and the upcoming centennial of the armistice are being commemorated. This week in Commission News, we're joined by World War I Centennial Commissioner John D. Monahan, better known as Jack Monahan. Jack chairs the Commission's Armistice Centennial Events Committee, or ACE Committee, and as they go, a pretty good World War I acronym. Armistice Centennial Events, World War I ACE, <laughs> not bad. Anyway, they're planning, organizing, and executing commemorative events marking the centennial of the armistice coming up on Veterans Day 11-11-2018. Jack Monahan comes to the commission from the halls of the American Legion, where he's on the National Finance Commission, which is responsible for the stewardship of the financial resources of the Legion. Jack, welcome to the podcast. Well, hello. I'm so pleased to be with you today. Jack, I know that you're not the American Legion's historian, but many of our listeners don't really know the history of the organization. Could you give them a glimpse into how and why the American Legion was founded a century ago? By all means. The American Legion had its genesis, in fact, in World War I, so it is very closely associated with our centennial of the World War. In fact, it was founded by members of the American Expeditionary Forces uh, beginning in March of 1919, and it was a means whereby the members of the American Expeditionary Forces could come together for mutual support and benefit, of course, but also to continue their service to a community, state, and nation as they moved back to the United States. It was what we would call the doughboy spirit, and they were enthused about what they had achieved in defending democracy in France and were determined that they would come together and bring that back home and become a force for good in their home nation. Now, Jack, you're also the chairman of the Armistice Centennial Events Committee, which is pulling together a lot of elements for this really special Veterans Day, used to be called Armistice Day. Can you provide an overview of what's going to be happening in Washington that weekend? Yes, of course. The Armistice Centennial Committee, which is a subset of the commission, is responsible for organizing the events in Washington, D.C., in and around the centenary of the original Armistice Day, which we now call Veterans Day. And so the committee is very busy in organizing the marking of this particularly special Veterans Day with a number of events at the World War I memorial site known as Pershing Park. And so we will organize events there, including musical, military, and contemporary music. We will have a redux of the very successful concerts that were held in New York by the 369th Experience. And we will also have a film festival of World War I films. 
And it is, of course, intended to bring emphasis not only on the service and sacrifice of those who serve, but to do it in the place where we intend to honor them permanently in Pershing Park. We will also have a sacred service on November 11th at the Washington National Cathedral. A part and parcel of that, although distinct in a certain way, is our Bells of Peace program. We will mark the hour, 11, 11, 11, local time at the cathedral itself as part of the sacred service, but we also have a program that will be nationwide. Well, yeah, Bells of Peace is both local and national. Now, I know we already have five state proclamations to toll the bells and a bunch more in the wings and well over 100 organizations that have already signed up to participate. In fact, we have a team introducing all that this weekend at the 100th National Convention of the American Legion in Minneapolis. That's the big annual Legion gathering. It's a huge convention. It's a pretty big deal, isn't it? It is a big deal. The American Legion's National Convention is the governing body of the American Legion, and it's the largest annual meeting, and it will have upwards of 10,000 people in the aggregate from the entire American Legion family, meaning the American Legion, its auxiliary, and the sons of the American Legion in Minneapolis for this event. Minneapolis is a homecoming of sorts. It is our 100th convention, and so Minneapolis was the location of the very first convention in 1919. It also represents the kickoff event of the Legion's own centennial commemorations, which will continue through 2019. The convention is the only place where changes to the bylaws and constitution of the American Legion can be done. Beyond that, we will have exhibitions, including the World War I Centennial Commission will have a substantial exhibit in the exhibit hall. There will be a patriotic memorial service, a parade, and the general sessions typically have a number of nationally acclaimed speakers. It is a big deal for the Legion. It's significant for us in the commission. Commissioner Monaghan, thank you for joining us and providing some perspective on the history and the gathering of the American Legion, as well as plans for the commemoration of the centennial of the armistice. Thank you for being with us. We're happy to have been here. <laughs> U.S. World War I Centennial Commissioner John D. Monaghan is a member of the American Legion National Finance Commission, among a lot of other things. Learn more about the World War I Centennial ACE programming and the American Legion at the links in the podcast notes. For our spotlight on the media, we have a treat for many of you. This week, we're talking video games. 1111 Memories Retold is a very unique upcoming video game about World War I, published by Bandai Namco. Unlike the hugely popular first-person shooter war games like Battlefield 1, 1111 Memories Retold is a narrative-driven, graphically artistic story adventure full of historical details. Let me read you the story overview from the game's website. It's the 11th of November, 1916. A young photographer leaves Canada to join the Western Front in Europe. That same day, a German technician is told that his son is missing in action on the front. These men will discover the reality of war, crossing paths on the front and in the rear, trying to preserve their humanity for their loved ones in the face of disastrous events, but only if they can come back. At 11 a.m., on the 11th day of the 11th month of the year of 1918, they will face the biggest decision of their lives. This is the moving story of the end of World War I. Okay, I'm intrigued. And today we're joined by Johan Fanis, creative director at Digix Art Studios and one of the guiding forces behind this unique project. 
Yuan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Theo, and really a big thanks to welcome me uh, into this podcast. Yeah, like you said, 11-11 is not really a war game. It's a game about war. It's a game about personal stories and family and really small events that happened during World War I. So the trailer of the game is really compelling. I mean, it's not a first-person shooter. What inspired the project in this way? It's two events. It's both a family story. My grandmother one day showed me all the letters that she got from my great-grandfather who was on the phone. And she told me all those stories. All those research and those family stories, you know, they are very, of course, uh, emotional. And after that, there was the meeting with the encounter with Hartman, the famous British studio behind Wallace and Gromit. And together, we decided that we wanted to make a tribute to World War I, to this heritage, and to make sure the, the young generation don't forget about what happened. So it's a story game. And can you explain how that works and what the experience is going to be if I go into the game world? Yes, in the game world, this is quite the opposite of a shooter like Battlefield. The two characters that you're going to play, Harry the Canadian and Kurt the German, they don't have weapons because one is a technician, like engineer on the front, a wire engineer, and the other one is a photographer for the British Empire. And the activity is more about making choice of what you want to say with who you want to talk in the trenches, for example. So it's more a narrative kind of activity. So you explore and you will find some documents on the floor. You will ask people about things, about your son, about personal stories, and you will discover the story by yourself, in fact. That's wonderful. So the actual history of World War I is a big part of the game. How did you do the historical research and the interaction in 1111? Yeah, this was one of the most passionate parts of the project. It's because we cover from 1916 to 1918, so to the end, and we worked with two historians, one British, Peter Doyle, and one German, because we really wanted to have the both sides all the time, German historian called Robin Schaeffer, because they did a book together before, and this book was a collection of letters from both sides. We worked with them every day. We were using Slack. Yeah, we have a channel called History, and on this channel, we can ask them a question about, is this true? Is this photo of this uniform is good or not for that time, that place? So it was, it was wonderful. This really isn't a story about enemies. This is a story about people, right? Yes, exactly. This is the story about all those small moments that happened between the two sides of not necessarily friendship, but sometimes they were thinking like, why are we here? Why are we fighting? And sometimes they were deciding to have some truth, you say in English, maybe some moment of let's pause that thing and let's respect us as, as human beings. You can also play as their companions in the game as a cat and a pigeon. I really wanted that because it offers a, a new perspective to the player. Suddenly, uh, you are an animal, you can cross the domain lands, you, you can go on the other side, you can fly. And this is so intense compared to, you know, the mud, the trenches, this feeling of being uh, grounded that deep. And suddenly, with the pigeon, it's strong emotion when you fly over the no man's land. And it's very, very impressive. Well, I saw recently that Elijah Wood was one of the character voices. Do you have other people doing character voices? Are there known names? Yes. Well, Elijah Wood, for sure, is the most famous that we have on board. He was very happy to do that project. And on the German side, we also have Sebastian Koch, who is very famous in Germany, quite famous in France also, because he did some movie in, in France too. 
he did an American movie, I think. And when he discovered the story of the game, he was really happy that, okay, now we treat Germany in, a, in another way. And he was very happy about that. There's an art direction, let's say, to the game that's really, yeah. really special. How did that happen? Yeah, I really wanted to go far from the realism because we wanted to portray the emotions and what they feel and not necessarily the, what is graphic. So there's no graphic violence, there's no blood, like graphic stuff. It's more about the emotions and what they feel. And this painterly style that we did create, it was a big, big challenge to create that painterly. This is the first painterly game in 3D. And we wanted that for a reason, is that it shows the emotion very strongly. You can feel the evolution of the emotion of the characters before the war, during the war, and after the war. Because what we show also is not only the front, but is the rear. And when they go home, you can realize that in their mind, they have changed totally. What age range is the game? What would be the youngest user that it would make sense to? Yeah, it's a good news because we got the rating last week for US and we are teen. So we are really proud to be teen because we wanted to be accessible to a very wide audience. What is the game shipping and what platforms is it going to be on? So the game will ship in November 9th, so just two days before the centenary of the armistice, because we wanted to ship on the 11-11, of course, but uh, it's a Sunday and we cannot launch a game on a Sunday. That's too bad. So yeah, it's going to launch November 9th on Xbox, PlayStation, and PC. Well, that means that on 11-11, people can play it and experience. Yes, yes. <laughs> we have to do that before, for sure. We cannot miss the date, and that adds a lot of pressure to the team also to to not miss the date. We have a hard deadline. Well, congratulations on a really fantastic project. You know, I don't currently have a game platform and your game may just make me go out and get one. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Johan Fanis, creative director at Digix Art Studios. Learn more about the game and watch the game trailer by following the link in the podcast notes or send us an info request via Twitter at the ww one podcast and we'll be posting about the game over the coming weeks on that Twitter channel. This week in our segment, Remembering Veterans, we're joined by two young men that are very unique World War I reenactors. First of all, they happen to be twin brothers. And they're also younger than most reenactors, which is incredibly compelling. When you see the brothers in doughboy uniforms, you realize that they're really the age of the men or the boys that we sent over there. It's kind of powerful. Seth and Garrett Moore are from Columbus, Ohio, and their passion is FWW, the First World War. They collect relics and artifacts from the war and hope to someday open their own World War I museum. We introduced you to these young men a few weeks ago when they were in France participating in a number of reenactments and ceremonies. But now they're here with us live today. Gentlemen, at ease. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having yeah. us. Okay, the first question, and either you can answer because I happen to know it's going to be the same exact answer no matter who answers. How old are you? We are 19. <laughs> Double answer. Thank you. So you're literally, I mean, and, and when I see you guys and I see pictures of you guys, I have a whole different reaction because you really are the age that we started sending the boys over there. Is there any special connection in your own minds that that generates for you? I guess it's just more of, you just feel more connected to it. I yeah, suppose. it's it's kind of hard to explain. It's like more of like an empathy link or something to it. You just feel like you could be there and it's like a real thing. 
Yeah. And you know what? Watching you guys, the same happens for the people who see you. So how did you get started and interested in World War One to begin with? We had always been interested in history, you know, when we'd go to the library at school or whatever, you, you know, we'd check out history books. But five, six years ago, my great grandmother, who was born in 1915, was telling us about various times throughout her life and what she experienced. So I kind of decided once to just ask about what she remembered of the First World War. And she told us when her uncle went off to fight the Germans in 1917. So it kind of started from that point as a family history type thing. And then he quickly evolved into what it is today, you know, collecting and reenacting and so on. So Seth, reenactment involves some really serious investment, not just time and interest, but money and focus. Is your whole family involved in your passion? When we first started, they kind of thought it was a phase, but more recently, they've kind of come to accept the fact that it's Garrett and I's passion. So yeah, they're pretty supportive. We wouldn't have all the opportunities we would have gotten and everything. Well, and you're attracting a lot of national attention. And again, I think it's because you actually are representing the real experience. Now, you guys are collectors, uniforms, objects, and you know, allies and belligerents and all that stuff. Each of you, what do you think is the highlight of your collection? We got a tunic from Russia called a Gymnasturka, and this particular one's from the Kerensky Provisional Government. So it's not Tsarist Army and it's not Bolshevik. It's in between. So, Seth, what about for you? Probably some of the pictures we have, photographs with stuff written on them, photo postcards where you get your picture taken and put on it and they've sent it off to people, that kind of thing, because it, should, it tells a story. It kind of makes it more individual than just looking at a faceless mannequin kind of thing, get an idea, get people's mindset, what they were thinking about during the time. So guys, can you tell us about your recent trip to France? What were some of those highlights? Well, where do you begin? It was a great experience. Really kicked off at the air show in Epernay. We were there, we heard about it, we went and they had some French reenactors from the Association du Poilu de la Marne. And they're like some top-notch World War I reenactors, really great guys, really friendly. They told us about the event Chateau Thierry. We are able to hang out with them outside of just doing World War I stuff, which was really cool because you got to kind of get a taste of what it's like for the French reenactors and what they do for their World War I centennial commemorating events. It's got to be quite different because the memory of the war in France is completely different than the memory here. Somebody mentioned to me when we were first starting the project that in Europe, they lost so many young men that almost anyone who's living in Europe now is a descendant of a survivor. A little intense to think about. When we did the ceremony at the Walzine American Cemetery, we met the superintendent there, Hubert Kaloud and some of the guys that are employed by the ABMC to keep the cemeteries nice looking and everything. And I'd like to thank them for making sure that the Americans that are still there in France are still taken care of 100 years on. They do a really good job over there. And I want to thank Matt and Bert both for giving us the opportunity to do the ceremony at Wazina. Was that the event where their local reenactor had fallen off and uh, you all stepped in to support? It was originally going to be somebody from the United States doing it, but they had something come up. Then they couldn't get any local ones. To yeah, we happened to be in the right place at the right time. So, 
Well, and all word on it is you did awesome. <laughs> so thank you. Well, thank you. Well, you're both really, really special guys. And thank you for what you're doing. You're really helping make the Du Bois come alive to a nation that's largely forgotten. So thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Seth and Garrett Moore are reenactors and World War I enthusiasts. Learn more about them and World War I reenactments at the links in the podcast notes. Now, sticking with our War in the Sky theme, for this week's World War I War Tech, we're going to focus on an aerial technology that played an important role in the skies over the trenches, aerial observation balloons. Now, observation was an incredibly important role for aerial warfare in World War I. One of the big roles for the iconic fighter planes and the dogfights in the air was in part to protect other planes that were low-flying, slow-flying observation planes as they took strategically critical reconnaissance photographs. But low, slow observation planes weren't the only easy targets in the sky. Balloons were used a lot as observation platforms right at the fighting front. These hovering mammoths were used for directing artillery fire, which needed spotters and observation well beyond the visual range of ground-based observers. As much as planes were able to record enemy positions and movements on film, Having real-time spotters in observation balloon baskets linked to the ground by telephone was essential. It allowed the artillery to take advantage of increasingly larger guns with vastly longer ranges. Now, these balloons don't quite look like the hot air balloons you may imagine. They were often called sausages, or saucisson in French. They were big oblong things with fat fins on the sides to keep them pointing in a direction. And as if being a sitting duck, unprotected over the battlefield wasn't dangerous enough. The sausage-shaped gas bags were filled with highly flammable hydrogen, making them susceptible to fires started by hot rounds coming from the ground below. They were favorite targets of biplanes that attacked from behind the clouds overhead. And as these balloon busters went after them, Flying low at balloon level, well, they often got shot down with anti-aircraft guns from below, but not nearly as often as the balloons did. James Allen Higgs Jr., a native of Raleigh, North Carolina, describes his balloon getting shot down, which happened to him four times during the war. We were wearing parachute harnesses with a rope attached to the chute that was stuffed into a bag hanging on the outside of the basket. Our weight would pull the chutes out of the bag. They were supposed to open when we dropped 300 feet. <laughs> it takes nearly five seconds to fall 300 feet from a standing start. And that's an awful long time to wonder whether you're going to live or you're going to die. The parachute opened with a considerable jolt, but it was a really pleasant feeling. Higgs and his fellows got rewarded for jumping out of burning falling balloons. Each time they were shot down, they got 48 hours of leave in Paris to settle their nerves and get ready to go up again. Balloons, an essential part of the aerial repertoire in World War I. We have links for you in the podcast notes, and you can hear a longer segment on James Allen Higgs Jr. that we recorded for the War in the Sky segment of episode 30 in July of 2017. The links are in the podcast notes. All right, for our weekly feature, Speaking World War I, we found a World War I term connected to balloons. If you're in 1918, what do you call the brave, 
wackadoodle daredevils like James Allen Higgs that got up in those observation balloons on the battlefront. What else? You call them balloonatics. <laughs> yeah, they were. They were lunatics to get into those balloon baskets as sitting ducks and prey to planes, sharpshooters, and artillery. The word was a common way to refer to members of balloon units in the First Army. There were 102 American balloon units that were formed during World War I, but most of them were still in the U.S. at the time of the armistice. Only 36 balloon units saw service overseas. Balloonatics. Incredibly brave and maybe slightly crazy American men who hung over the battlefields in baskets, dangling from balloons. And this week, speaking World War I word. Learn more from the links in the podcast notes. This week in Articles and Posts, where we highlight the stories that you'll find in our weekly newsletter, The Dispatch. Headline, Adopt a Grave Program at Flandersfield American Cemetery. A Flemish family has volunteered to be part of an Adopt the Grave program at the Flanders Field American Cemetery. Flanders Field is a true battlefield cemetery, and the area surrounding the site saw intense fighting during the autumn of 1918. Now, however, Flanders Field Cemetery is a place of peace and contemplation, managed by the American Battle Monuments Commission. Headline Amiens 100 Student Battlefield Tour Diary is now available online. In August of 2018, students from Australia, Canada, France, the UK, and the United States came together to tour the former World War I battlefields as a part of the commemoration of the centennial of the battle in Amiens, France. Two groups of students came from the U.S., sponsored with the help of the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission and the National World War I Museum and Memorial as a part of their joint education programs. Read the story in the dispatch. Headline from the Wright Blog. Cousins Reunited. How the World War I U.S. occupation of Germany still reverberates a century later. Nearly 100 years after it was taken in a German village, a photograph sheds light on a family secret that connected a German man to his cousin he'd never known in faraway Tennessee. In this centennial year, marking the end of World War I, the discovery illuminates a post-war occupation of Germany that most Americans have never heard of. A quarter of a million U.S. troops held some 2,500 square miles of Rhineland for four years after the November 1918 armistice that ended the fighting. Finally, our selection from the official World War I Centennial Merchandise Shop. Our featured item this week is our charm pendant. Proudly wearing the World War I 100-year charm pendant is a fantastic way for those serving in the military, veteran spouses, and kids to show that we still honor those who served our country 100 years ago. Links to our merchandise shop and all the articles we've highlighted here are in the Weekly Dispatch newsletter. Subscribe at ww1cc.org slash subscribe, all lowercase. You can also send us a link request with a tweet at the ww one podcast or follow the link in the podcast notes. And that brings us to the buzz, the centennial of World War I this week in social media with Catherine Akey. Catherine, what are this week's posts? Hey Teo, we shared a few really exciting and interesting articles this week over our social media accounts. The first comes from the British Films Institute, who recently announced that the world premiere of Peter Jackson's They Shall Not Grow Old will be at the 62nd BFI London Film Festival. 
The film has been co-commissioned by 1418 Now, the UK's arts program for the First World War Centenary, and the UK's Imperial War Museums. They Shall Not Grow Old has been created exclusively with original footage from the Imperial War Museums and audio from the BBC archives. It has been put through a digital process to sharpen and enhance and bring the footage so into the present that it's hard to believe that what you're seeing was taken 100 years ago. You can read more about the film and its upcoming premiere, which will occur this October. Links are in the podcast notes for you. Last for the week is an article and audio piece from NPR. We spoke at length in our August weekly roundtable about the complex and dramatic situation in Russia in 1918, as the country was embroiled in a civil war and its empire started to break apart. Mike Schuster has also been following these events in his Great War Project blog, and the important and not very well-known involvement of the Allied forces on the ground in Russia 100 years ago. NPR published this story about the contemporary memory of that intervention, but from the Russian perspective. The piece is entitled, In Russia, Scant Traces and Negative Memories of a Century-Old U.S. Intervention. And it looks at the remains of the Allied and American presence left behind, a single American grave in Vladivostok, rumors of Allied atrocities. Listen to it at the link in the podcast notes. That's it this week for The Buzz. And that wraps up episode number 86 of World War I Centennial News. Thank you for listening. We want to thank our guests, Mike Schuster, curator for the Great War Project blog, Dr. Edward Langle, military historian and author, World War I Centennial Commissioner, Jack Monahan. Yoan Fanis, creative director at Digix Art Studio. Reenactors, Seth and Garrett Moore. Catherine Akey, World War I photography specialist and line producer for the podcast. Many thanks to Mac Nelson and Tim Crow, our wonderful sound editing team. And starting this coming week, J.L. Michaud, who you may remember was our summer intern, is now going to be one of our regular researchers on the show as he continues his studies. It's a great team that brings you this weekly show, and I'm proud to be your host. I'm Teo Mayer. The U.S. World War I Centennial Commission was created by Congress to honor, commemorate, and educate about World War I. Our programs are to inspire a national conversation and awareness about World War I, including this podcast. We're bringing the lessons of 100 years ago to today's educators and to their classrooms. We're helping to restore World War I memorials in communities of all sizes around the country. And of course, we're building America's National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. We want to thank the Commission's founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, as well as the Star Foundation for their support. The podcast and a full transcript of the show can be found on our website at www.cc.org. You'll find World War I Centennial News in all the places that you get your podcasts, and even using your smart speaker by saying, play WW1 Centennial News Podcast. The podcast Twitter handle is at the WW1 Podcast. The Commission's Twitter and Instagram handles are both at WW1CC, and we're on Facebook at WW1 Centennial. Thank you for joining us, and don't forget to share the stories that you're hearing here today about the war to change the world.
Hope you can join us next week. So long.